there's this song that I heard earlier today, and I really like it, but I don't know the lyrics, and I don't know what song it is. Could you kind of like help me figure out what it is if I sing it for you? Yeah, I mean, of course. Okay, it goes like... Kind of like that. Okay, let me... Hmm. I know it? Do you want me to sing it again? Yeah, sing it again. Okay. It goes like... Like that. Oh, I... It's... I'm going to bring... I'm going to get Emily in here and see... I'm going to... Emily! Oh, uh, can you can you hum it for? Her? Yeah, it goes like. Oh. Uh, she actually she couldn't hear it because I'm wearing headphones. I'm gonna I'm gonna hum it for her. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was it, right? Yeah, well, mm, uh, now that I think about it, it it went more like, like, that's kind of more of how I remember it. Let me try again. Like that? No, we might have to try a different method. Maybe if we talk about something else for a while, we'll kind of like come to us oh all right well i guess we'll just have to get into it then Hello 
and welcome to Ghost Divers, an anime podcast with Neve and Connor. Hey, everyone. And uh, today we are covering episodes 1 through 13 of Sakagake Kromarty High School, or Crow High, I'm sure we'll say a lot. Now, I know our discussion uh, of Kromarty High School will, by necessity, be a little bit different um, than our discussion of Ghost in the Shell, which, um, if you've been with us the whole time, after 10 plus hours of Ghost in the Shell... You're probably ready for something different. But I think I'll, I'll let you take the first crack at it, because after all, you have been a fan of Crow Eye for longer than I have. And of course, that's that's significant. That's important. Seniority um, is important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for respecting my position. I'm just a um, first year. Yeah. So I think when it comes to, like, we're going to, talk through Kamari High School. Um, when we did Ghost in the Shell, I realized that we probably needed to do a little bit more of a recap. And like we can kind of try and do that with Kamari High School, but this is... It's it's a bunch of bits. It's a comedy anime. It's a bunch of, like, here are jokey jokes. Um, and I don't know how much just being like let's go through the plot is really going to help. So I feel like we'll bring up like specific bits if we have thoughts about it. Um, I think the one that I'm going to just go into the most here is just talking a little bit about episodes one and two, because this is like the first that most people will see if they're watching Cromartie high school. And I think is also, um, there's something interesting that's happening at the very beginning here where, so for episode one, I, I read this episode in particular as setting up, um, I'm going to like, here we go. Neve's bullshit. Let's bring in some theory. I'm going to like put it down here. Um, <laughs> so I took a class on Japanese cinema, specifically Yakuza cinema. We talked a lot about the genre. I'm going to quote a specific work here. This is like not the only work to put these ideas forth, but in uh, the English language book, Reframing Japanese Cinema, there was an essay by Keiko, or there is an essay by Keiko E.Y. McDonald called The Yakuza Film, An Introduction. And I think it is a good one to just be like, if you, person listening, want to learn about like what is the genre convention of Yakuza film. This is the, the big one that I'm going to point you to. There's some other decent ones, but I don't fully know Keiko E.Y. McDonald's like background, but my understanding is I think coming from like this position of being both American and Japanese in some way. And so I, I trust McDonald's take on this more than some of the other like English language writing that you'll find about this, which are coming from like purely white dudes in academia Again, English language. Uh, one of the things that was great about that class was the the professor was a white guy, but he spoke Japanese fluently and translated a bunch of Japanese essays for us. So um, I got to read a bunch that were written in Japan about uh, Yakuza cinema from that perspective, and I, I feel like helped inform a lot of my understanding. But I, I think the big thing that I just want to put forth here, so why am I talking about Yakuza you listen to the intro to Karate High School. I kind of alluded to this. Um, Karate High School, it, at least like on its face, is a genre parody, and it is a genre parody of what's called Yankee, 
Or I've also sometimes in the West seen it referred to as Bancho, which so like Yankee means like it comes from Yankee being like Western, but it's a name for school delinquents. Bancho kind of means like badass and usually like so within Crow Crow High, like some of the main characters might be Bonchos because they're like the badass of the school. Like there's that part during episode one where they're talking about the tough guy nicknames. And I'm not sure what word they're using in Japanese, but I wouldn't be surprised if Boncho came into it. I think Boncho also gets highlighted in the U.S. because there was this game, uh, Kenka Boncho, uh, which I think they like roughly translated to as badass rumble. But it is, in some ways, a parody of the Yakuza games. And so this is where this, like, comes in. A lot of high school delinquent anime stuff in Japan, is, at least my understanding of it, how I, how I view it, is that it is sometimes a more lighthearted take on Yakuza. Yakuza often being geared towards, like, the adult male audience, and then Yankee or Bancho being geared towards, like, a slightly younger male audience. There's some interesting things that come up with it. One is I've often found, like, in general, Yankee stuff tends to be more playful, even if it's not, like, overtly a comedy. It, it tends to be a little bit more willing to play with things. And I think also sometimes tends to be more willing to critique some of the stuff that exists in Yakuza as a genre. Um, I think some of this happens because I don't know, I can't speak like to the current moment of film and anime production in Japan. I know historically Yakuza have had a hand in a number of at least film companies. And so there's a certain, and also a number of game companies. And so there's a certain amount of like when Yakuza are being portrayed, there's probably also Yakuza money going into it. And so you're not going to like, there's still going to be the heroes in some way. Right. Yeah. Like you're going to make something that's about like how ruthless and cruel these people are, but in a way that's going to be like a Yakuza will then go watch the movie and be like, Oh yeah, we are badasses, Right. Um, like the battles I, without type of narrative. Yeah. And I, I think that, Yankee stuff can sometimes be a little bit more critical because you can kind of laugh at like, oh, these high schoolers want to be Yakuza. Like, what a stupid dream. And you can do it from this perspective that even if there's Yakuza money going into your production, they might also be like, huh, like stupid high schoolers. They want to be like us. They don't know what it's really like. Right. And so I think because of that, it can sometimes be more interestingly critical of the actual structures. I don't know if Cromartie High fully engages with this, but like this is just me going on a tangent as I want to do. But I, I think especially Cromartie High School is in some ways more directly parodying Yakuza stuff from what I've seen than directly like other Yankee anime or other Yankee manga. Uh, and I think part of this even just comes down to like the character designs and the, the style is cribbing a Yakuza mangaka, not a shonen, you know, young boys genre artist who, you know, mangaka who's like drawing for, for that audience. And so there's that certain amount of like Crow High itself is marketed as shonen as like boy uh, like for like younger men, whereas Yakuza is usually marketed sign-in, which is like adult men. And yet Cromartie High School is directly parodying, like even in just its visual style, that older style. 
And so, like, it's harder for me to, like, fully say, like, oh, it's it's not actually a parody of Yakuza, it's a parody of Yankee. And I also think some of this comes down to, like, I'm finally going to get to the point of why I brought up the Yakuza film and introduction by Keiko E.Y. McDonald. I think some of the, especially early on, the humor that is coming, uh, that is, like, underpinning what is happening in Cromartie High School is dealing with this tension between Giri and Ninjo, which is usually represented in the sense of Jingi. So I just like threw out three Japanese words here. I'm going to quickly give the definitions that Keiko McDonald does. Jingi is the code of honor prevalent in the world of Yakuza, and it is used in those films as a frame to look at how Giri and Ninjo come into conflict. Giri is the social obligation. In the broader Japanese sense, it is the obligation that you have to like society as a whole and to other people around you. And especially within Yakuza cinema, it is like this is the obligation that you have to the Yakuza family. This is the obligation that you have to your boss in the Yakuza family. Ninjo is the personal inclination, um, sometimes even translated as like the humanity or it's like this is like what I want to do and this is what feels what what is right to me. And sometimes that takes the form of like I want to pursue this love interest that's being denied or it might take the form of here's this person who was my brother in this previous clan and we ended up in two different like Yakuza clans and now I have to fight him. And there's the part of me that's like, we were friends, we were like close. Now I have to fight you because this our bosses are telling us to fight you. That's like another way that this will come about. And because it is framing it within Yakuza, they are able to then take attention that I think exists for a lot of people in society, which is like, here's what I want to do. And then here's what I should do um, because I have a boss, I have a job. I shouldn't be an asshole to people also is like sometimes a part of that it then like puts it into this crime world where it can then be more critical of that structure in a way that's not being as directly critical of like society i think a lot of the especially in these first episodes like episode one so much of the humor for me is coming from them doing that same level of interiority and dramatization that you might get in a yakuza film around like I do not want to fight my brother, but I have to because, you know, our our families are at war, like our clans are at war now, and I have to, like, go against him, or I have to turn against my boss, and, like, what am I going to choose? But instead, it's, like, how do I fit in at high school, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, how do I, like, save face in this yeah. moment? And... The first episode in particular, it seems to be really about like how the image, like the ma- maintenance of a certain image is often valued over the truth. So one of the big examples here being like Maeda seems to actually be a badass. He's telling all these stories about all these fights that he won. You know, he's up against someone else who's like, well, technically I've never lost a fight because I've never been in a fight. But Maeda doesn't have a cool, badass nickname, and so no one takes him seriously, whereas everyone else, they're, they're taking seriously. This is also some of the stuff of, like, Kamiyama trying to figure out how do I present myself as a badass now that I'm coming into the school, which, if you want to know why Kamiyama is going to Kumari High School, even though he's a totally normal person and not a delinquent, read the manga. Um, <laughs> it actually is explained in the manga, so if you want to know, read the manga. But... uh 
you know, that like normalness then also gets framed by Hayashida being like, there's this story of the rabbit that lives amongst lions. And like, that must be one badass rabbit to just be chilling with a bunch of lions. Um, and that's why I'm like really scared of this guy. Yeah, um, at which point it's decided that Kamiyama is like the most badass. Yeah. And they do the like most badass competition. And then it's just like, oh, who can have like this, um, you know, like hot incense therapy thing on their back for the longest and and kamiyama wins um and then the second episode is like twisting this a little bit where like it's starting to show how other people are engaged in maintaining the illusion of the image because a lot of the second episode hinges around these jokes of mekazawa being a robot but then no one is saying it and they're just like and there keeps being these moments of like they're going on some uh you know they're talking to Mekazawa about something and someone's like hey there's something i noticed and they keep kind of drawing it out and then it's like oh you're missing a button on your shirt and then they're like no it's because he's a robot right um and like keeps building also just includes this great moment of Mekazawa who again at least appears to be a robot going on this rant against machines um, and like, oh, people are too reliant on machines, blah, 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 which like is that also introducing it's like this show will often set up. Here's a premise. And then when they do it again, they aren't just repeating the joke. They're also bringing in some other level of humor. So first you just get the like, oh, here's the joke of no one else seems to notice that he's a robot. But then, then there's like then the, the teasing of it. the joke. Yeah, but then the joke is, like, nobody recognizes that he's a robot, but then also he's, like, going on this rant about robots, and is like, does he not even know? And then it becomes, like, oh, are we, like, losing our minds or something? Are we deceived? Maybe he really isn't a robot, and we're just, like, seeing things wrong. And then they, like, go to stab Mekazawa, and then, it like, the, the dagger bends, um, and it's like, wait... Must be, like, a student with an abnormally hard body. (laughs) Um, Wait, he's not a normal student. He's a student with an extremely hard body. Yeah. (laughs) And then the, like, other guy showing him, like, Roly-poly Mekazawa, my friend! (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, like... we'll, We'll get into this more later with, like, how it's constructing jokes, but I, like... I kind of, I want to put this forward because I think for me, this is one of the big elements of humor in this show is how much it is engaging in like a internalization, like in a very drawn out and like taken again, like this exaggeration of seriousness of like how serious people are taking, trying to balance like their interiority versus you know, trying to balance that, like, that ninja versus the Geary, that, like, here's who I really am, here's the image that I have to maintain, or the person that I have to be in order to, like, continue to hold my station in society, or continue to be viewed the same way by my friends, or whatever it might be, Um, and, like, how do I build up this image, or how do I, like, maintain this image that I have, even though it is in some way contrary to, like, who I am as a person, or what I truly want to do with my life, and it is, like, fully drawing out that serious interior monologue and then it's often about these like very silly things where you can also watch it and be like if people just said 
what was going on, like this would be fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been talking for a while. I'll let you like talk more here, but, um, well, I, I think, I think you've laid it out re- really well. Um, this is such a great starting point for discussion of Cromartie High. And just to like add to, to what you've been saying, you know, I think what it, what the series does is it takes these, it takes these concepts like Ninjo and Giri, uh, and, and Jinji and immediately cast them into absurdity so that they still remain, but instead of being like seen seriously, they're more just like emblems or gestures. Like they're immediately like turned into jokes so that you get like every instance of like Ninjo is as you've been pointing out, like it's something absurd. It's not like, as you would see in another film, like, Oh, you know, my love for my brother and, but I might have to kill him. And I'm struggling with this, like, horrific the agony over you know betraying my brother or killing my brother and this you know deep love that i have for him uh it's that never enters into the equation um it's always something like oh i love comedy but i can't tell this joke that i really want to tell so it takes these like these concepts and immediately like cast them into absurdity, like in the first three minutes um, as almost like a mission statement. Uh, (laughs) And this is like, okay, here's the groundwork that we're going to be like playing with. Um, We are going to be like playing with these concepts, but we are immediately going to render them absurd. And like, instead of being like, Oh, here's a serious tension between like, you know, these two different forces, they're more just like emblems that get cast into like this blender of comedic elements um, that then just like combine and clash together uh, in these really absurd ways. Um, Yeah. I think there's also like, this is one of those. So I I have a question that I posed to like to you earlier of uh, how much is Cromartie High School a genre parody? Because on one end, I think it is very directly playing with these elements of especially Yakuza genre as like part of the basis of the jokes. And yet I don't know if like, I think there are lots of people who will find this funny, even if they don't know Yakuza films. Like, I don't Absolutely. know how well, you know, Yakuza films. I didn't know them super well when I first watched this. I definitely watched a few, but like I did not, I took a class on Yakuza cinema after I watched Cromarty high school. And it is in retrospect when I watched Cromarty high school that I go like, wow, it seems to actually be playing with these formal tropes. But I think part of what is also so funny about it is in some ways, the drama that happens in Yakuza cinema is so unrelatable. Like it's good drama because you're like, Oh, this is such a like fierce tension between, you know, their duty to the, the Yakuza boss and the, what they truly want to do with their life or whatever. Um, and it's so tragic and like beautiful and sad. And, you know, 
sometimes it, it feels triumphant when they do turn against their boss and yet often still somehow like that will go wrong. And if they, they don't then like, Oh, the pure sadness of having to, you know, deny yourself in order to continue to exist within the society that you exist in. There's something relatable there, but it's like so over the top dramatized. And what's so funny about Cromartie high school is that over the top dramatization, but it is something that is so much more relatable of like, I moved uh, cities or I guess towns when I was starting middle school. And so it's like, oh, how do I fit in in middle school? And it's like, you know, Kamiyama in this first episode being like, how do I fit in with this delinquent school? I, you know, I like Kamiyama was a good student all my life. And then I went to middle school and it was like, I don't fit in here. And how do I, how do I navigate this world? And that is like such a more relatable interior conflict to be going through and yet it is so hilarious to see it presented with the same level of melodrama that would then exist with like these truly weighty things of like must i kill my true love or whatever Um, (laughs) or like do i have to deny my entire being so that i can continue to exist apart as a part of this like yakuza family um which is like what gives me my livelihood and like i have little chance of re-entering society and it's like yeah this is like trying to exist under capitalism and having to like compromise yourself in order to even eat and like have a, a house you know, that you live in. And yet it is so melodramatic and over the top. And this is just like, but what if it is about trying to fit in at school? Or like, what if it is about like, Hey, is anyone going to point out that this person is a robot? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or like, Oh, I have severe motion sickness. And like, I, I only live 15 minutes away from the school, but 15 minutes is, it's a long walk. And like, sometimes I get tired of making that walk. So I want to ride the bus, but when I ride the bus, I get really motion sick. And if anyone ever sees me getting motion sick on the bus, then they won't think I'm a badass anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so it, yeah, it, it takes these tropes and like, instead of, instead of using them like as the building blocks, it puts them at arm's length and like makes them makes them like the subject of this like very critical like parody and i don't and i use the word critical i guess it just is like a reflex i don't even know how critical it is necessarily um it's it's just uh you know crow high it can leave you speechless sometimes (laughs) um I, i i don't know if it's like oh here's this you know deep critique of yakuza cinema and how it's really like regressive and so on and so forth i mean i do think there's substance to crow high but i don't really think that's what's going on and and for that reason like i don't know if i would genre parody is not the first thing i would call it um i think i would i personally like i approach it from more the standpoint of like okay this is an absurdist comedy yeah. And like part of what is being like drawn in here, especially like you know, obviously the setting and like a lot of the tropes are of like Yonki and Yakuza, but it's not like it it just so immediately like dispenses with all of that that it doesn't feel like 
oh yeah, this is what this is about. You know, it's not about like a sustained engagement with these things. It's like, it's just immediately dashing through all of it. Yeah. I, in our uh, intro to Marty High, I briefly mentioned Heathcliff and um, <laughs> not quite as much as Cromarty High and the, uh, I went to the coin star and the coin star is not working. Like, Heathcliff is a slightly different part of my brain, and yet I think there's some similarity here as well, where I'm going to take this moment where I, like, there are probably a lot of people who might listen to this who know that I love Heathcliff and haven't actually seen me, like, put forth, this is why I love Heathcliff. So for a while, I found Garfield as a comic humorous, and... The way that I tried to express what I found funny about Garfield is that I did a video art series where literally every single day I recorded myself reading Garfield aloud into a camera and posted it on the internet. I read it completely deadpan. As it went on, I continued to get more and more into detail about like, this is what the color of the background is. Um, this is exactly where... He- where uh, Garfield is positioned on the table. Here's where John is, blah, blah, blah. And it was my way of capturing what I find hilarious about Garfield, which is that Garfield is this huge thing that everyone knows that has tons of merchandise that is like a, it is a franchise in its own right. And yet, if you actually read the comic, it's like, it's not funny. The comic itself is not funny. I never laughed during any of the videos that I did. And here's a, a surprise announcement. Um, I haven't made the the Twitter account yet, so I will, like, cut it in here. All right. The yeah. Twitter account is at Garf Read Aloud. Garf Read Aloud? Yeah. Okay. But I am bringing back today's Garfield read aloud as a Twitter account. Um, I have a friend who has been waiting for this for a very long time, and this is how I'm going to let him know. Um, What I was doing there was involving myself in the mundane, everyday repetition of, like, every single day Jim Davis sits down. Well, probably not every single day. I'm sure he draws some of these in batches. But, like, Jim Davis is is drawing Garfield comic strips, even though it's stupid, even though they're not funny. And a newspaper is working at like, you know, there's a a company that's working at like getting these newspapers, newspapers like typeset it and print it. Right. There's this, like, there are all these machinations, you know, someone like takes the newspaper and delivers it to someone's house, or you go to like gocomics.com and you read it as part of your day and it has become such a like part of someone's life. And yet it is like, you know, another part of why I find Garfield hilarious is this photo of Jim Davis himself standing with someone in a Garfield suit who has like fake pasta sauce all over the mouth. And like, there's just like this dead look in Jim, Jim Davis's eyes. Like his face is like completely devoid of life. And hilarious. It is funny to me because it is like this, this, like, it has subsumed his life and it is like infected so many of our lives. And yet it is like this dumb comic. And there's just something like absurdist and funny to me about that, 
about that entire process of like a comic becoming syndicated and becoming popular and being a thing that people read every day all around the world and having all this merchandise and it's like garbage and that like the systems that we live in the societies that we live in enable Garfield to exist and like there's some sort of absurdity in that that I have to laugh at and when I discovered Heathcliff which I kind of knew about but when I really started reading Heathcliff I was like Heathcliff itself as a comic seems to contain the absurdity that I find in in Garfield but that I find a lot of people who are making jokes about Garfield aren't fully engaging with in the same way especially a lot of the there's like a lot of uh Garfield meme stuff that's like what if we do Garfield but like edgy or whatever and I'm like no that's not what's funny about Garfield to me you know part of what was funny about Garfield is also someone searching YouTube and stumbling on there's a video where this or there's like a channel where this person is literally just recording themselves reading Garfield aloud every day and posting it. And they've been doing it every day for like a hundred days. This is wild. And like someone would find that YouTube account and more immediately recognize the absurdity in what I am doing that I recognize in what Jim Davis is doing and what every single person who reads Garfield every day is doing. Heathcliff is a comic that seems to have like fully from my reading of it, has like fully understood the absurdity of doing a syndicated daily newspaper comic. And is just like fully leaning into the like absurdity and Dadaism and meaninglessness of what syndicated newspaper comics mean. And that's why I find it so hilarious. And so this is why it like occupy occupies a slightly different part of my brain than Cromartie high school, because like the absurdity of newspaper comics which is what I think Heathcliff is engaged with, or at least like how I read and why I find it hilarious is definitely different than what Cromartie high school is doing. But I think it is still using some sort of material to then like generate an additional layer of humor. So I think like Asia Nonaka writing the Cromartie high school manga is taking the substance of genre parody and then using it to like emphasize some additional absurdity and like going beyond just what it means to do a genre parody manga to then like create some sort of absurdity about what it means to exist as like human and to like live every day. <laughs> yeah. Does that make um, sense? Yeah. I, I think without getting too, too much farther down the Heathcliff hole, um, <laughs> I do think that there's a, there there is similarity in the way that like Heathcliff is composed where you have these like tropes that have been so like removed or like severed or unmoored from any like whatever like significance they may have had that they're just like bordering the realm of nonsense but they continue to then just like float around and like emerge and interact with each other in like random comment not random but like some like seemingly random combinations around this like the barest pretense of a plot and and in that sense i think like the way that heathcliff is composed has some similarity to like what we see in crow high yeah um i i would also say I, I do feel bad because if someone isn't watching Crow High, like we kind of just blew past any exposition or, or grounding of it. 
Um, but, you know, I don't know how much that's going to help. Uh, if you haven't gathered already from our discussion, like, this is not a show with a conventional plot that can e- can easily be, like, explained. So, you know, ap- apologies there if we're already completely incomprehensible. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, you know, it is Crow High, after all. So to put a pin in, like, all of this, because it will continue to, like, come up, I think this is a good segue to, like, for me at least, like, pose some some thoughts about, like, okay, why is Kamiyama the protagonist? Which the show, like, reminds us again and again, Kamiyama is the protagonist. It takes great pains to, like, establish him over and over again in a way that itself becomes a joke as a protagonist. And I think it's because like Kamiyama is a character that is so, I don't, I don't know if he's certainly not devoid of interiority because we see like, we, we see his interiority many times, but he's someone who's so defined by just his like, his sheer like earnestness and like credulity in a way that like I think is is somewhat shared uh, by most of the other characters, but like overwhelmingly present in Kamiyama. So he becomes like the linchpin of a lot of jokes that that like rely on his. Well, let me back up. Um, a lot of the jokes in Crow High rely on this interplay like we've kind of discussed between like expectation and convention individuals perception of others and then like the interiority of like the character being perceived and because Kamiyama is like so overwhelmingly like normal and vanilla and like earnest he is just like this baseline of contrast for everyone else to like impose certain like expectations that are inevitably faulty with a good example being like the rabbit among like lions where Hayashida just assumes this like kind of interiority for Kamiyama um so there's a dramatic irony because like the viewer knows that that is not the case and that Kamiyama is like over here reading a book like how to how to be a delinquent and Hayashida is like oh this guy is so like He's he's so unimposing that he must just be like an incredible badass to like to you know be so weak seemingly and be among like all of us badasses and this is something that uh, kind of emerges again and again as, as we go on. Yeah, I think like again I don't know how much value there is in hitting here's what happens in the actual plot here but i do want to take a moment for us to like set aside the humming episode episode three which of course we pastiched at the beginning of this um one of the things that i love about this episode so i need to see i'm pretty sure this also happens in the manga which is also hilarious to me to like have a manga where it's not even audio that's just people humming at each other, but they definitely 
take it further in the show. It occupies an entire episode, which is like unique within Crow High. Um, most of the chapters of the manga, which are fairly short, there'll be like five or six of them that will make an episode of of the anime. Here, they take like literally one chapter of the manga and they draw it out to an entire episode. I think some of it is just like fully capturing what is absurd about even drawing a comic that is people humming at each other. I think some of it too is there's this extra joke. Like, I think it this episode takes place as episode three for multiple reasons um, because I think it also happens way later in the manga. I believe in the manga, it's like you even get a sense of it when you watch the anime here of you are seeing characters that haven't been introduced yet. Like you say Hokuto and his lackey during this episode. And then later on, like they come to Cromartie high school for the first time. Yeah. And so like this one, like is even kind of out of time in that way. And I think some of it was one, them as an anime putting down, like let us say something about how we are going to be adapting this manga and some of it is this like extra level of absurdity. There's just way more weird background stuff that happens in the anime. The the manga is like, you know, again, just talking heads. But I think also part of it is we are sometimes like even if you've read the manga multiple times, which I think in the US they're coming out more like concurrent. But obviously in Japan, the manga happened first. Even if you've read the manga first and you're coming to the anime, we're still going to introduce new new jokes to you. And we're going to do that with this episode three that is going to, for the entire episode, make you believe that we are just like taking one small chapter of the manga and drawing it out to an entire like 10 to 12 minute episode. But then there's also this added joke of... If you know the song, you get it very early on. But otherwise, if you don't, it's at the very end during the next time on, they tell you, here's the name of the song. The song is Ningen Nante by Takara Yoshida, who does the theme song for Kromarty High School. Ningen here literally translates to, like, human being or humanity. And the Ningen Nante as a phrase means that's humanity for you. The idea that Mekazawa, who in the previous episode, it was about this, like, oh, he's actually a robot, that his favorite song that he hums all the time is the song about that's humanity for you, is itself a continuation of that joke about Mekazawa in this way that does not exist in the manga. Because in the manga, it's literally just, like, written out, <laughs> whatever, you know? Um, yeah. Like, it's impossible to, like reading the manga to ever know what the song is. Whereas in the show, there's like an actual answer to it. And the answer is part of the joke as well. Um, I'm going to do the full lyrics to this song. One, it's a great song. Like maybe I'll even link to like a YouTube of it in the like work cited here. Um, I love this song. It's a great song. I can understand why it's Mekazawa's favorite song, but the lyrics roughly translate to that's humanity for you. La 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 la. Like that's repeated. Um, that's kind of the main part. And then there's this verse in it that is, I want something, but I don't know what it is. Still, I feel something is missing. The way I am right now isn't right. The clouds in the sky all go away. Someday I too will go somewhere. Is there something there? No one knows. 
And again, this is one of those like the the intro, June also captures this, but this is one of those songs too where it's like this is also getting at some sort of thing that is happening with the show and it's like presented in such a serious way, but then in the show is being like riffed on and joked on. But like this sense of like I don't know what's going on, something is missing, like I'm thinking about mortality or whatever that's happening in this song being like in, in a weird way, the show is engaged with some of that stuff, even as it is like full on goofing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think especially like the last two lines to me are like, especially like apt for Cromartie high, which is like, Oh, here I'm like meditating on mortality. Like, is there something there? No one knows. Like, la 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 la. That's humanity um, for you, la 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 la. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, again, in my reading, Crow High, it's, it's difficult to come down on, like, oh, here, you know, it seems like the show is trying to say something about, like, humanity or, like, you know, oh, here's this uplifting thing from Crow High. Like, it is a very uplifting show. Like for me, I can watch Kohai and I will feel better. Like if I'm feeling bad or whatever, I'll feel better after I watch it. So in its way, it's like extremely uplifting, but I think it's at the same time, a show that like, it's so, it is so like uncompromising in terms of how it renders everything absurd um so like the opening theme for instance like we kind of touched on it earlier but the opening theme it has all of these like you know dramatic lyrics and like you know very like humanistic like meditations and it's just almost this like complete non sequitur which is like part of the reason why it's funny is it's like yeah, it, it gets it sets the mood like correctly because it's really like uplifting and like folksy and it, it it works perfectly for like setting the mood, but then like the earnestness of the lyrics are just so immediately like like paradized by the absurdity of the show in this way that it's like almost a complete break, and I and like when they play a bit of the song, which is just the strumming before the vocals actually come in. And then they just like slowly fade in images of Freddy. Yoshida. Well, yeah, first like Freddy, but then also they like fade in images of the actual artist who performs the song. And like, some of them are like clearly blown up and like, Green, you know, gritty. not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like and even even is... the like the artist who like performs the song like be like enters into like the sequence of the show and becomes like a subject of like the parody like himself. Yeah. <laughs> and like that's how uncompromising this show is. Yeah, I so I don't know if you have other stuff to say about the humming episode. I definitely want to talk a little bit about Yamaguchi here as well. Who, who shows up in episode four. Um, we'll also kind of jump to episode seven again. Like what's the point in trying to fully follow chronology here? But yeah, Yamaguchi shows up in, in episode four and seven, but yeah, I think it's a great time to talk about Yamaguchi. Like this is a great segue. 
uh, yeah. because that episode, like, it it will allow us to to immediately take the next step in what we're talking about. Yeah. So Yamaguchi is like basically the the plot here is that he really wants to be a comedian. His secret life is that he writes these postcard jokes and sends them in to a radio show. But he he is the boss of I think it's Destrad High. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so yeah, he's like the the boss of whatever, like class one. I think everyone is basically class one here, which is, you know, like freshmen basically. And he hates like bad or crude jokes. This is one of the reasons why the dub to me feels so at odds because in some ways I think like there, there are weird things that are going on and like Yamaguchi is a meta commentary. I think on people thinking about Cromartie high as a comedy as well. Um, But I think in some ways Yamaguchi's, approach to comedy or sense of comedy is already at least starting from a similar space as Cromartie High School, where I do not think Cromartie High School is a comedy that is engaged with like, what is funny is the crude joke or like the weird sexist joke or the like, you know, poop joke or whatever. That's like not really what Cromartie High School is doing. And Yamaguchi is the one who, like, actively disdains those jokes and disdains his, you know, like, person within his high school. Because, again, Cromartie High School, as an anime, follows the anime logic of, like, everybody in this world thinks that whatever the subject of the anime is is the most important thing in the world. And so even though it first establishes, like, Cromartie High School is a school of delinquents, it's unlike there are a bunch of schools that are all schools of delinquents. (laughs) (laughs) right um yeah and so like yamaguchi's i forget is it ishikawa i think is the yeah yeah. ishikawa is the yeah is his subordinate yeah and so ishikawa will make these like stupid jokes these these crude jokes that yamaguchi hates and then we'll like start beating him up and then everyone's like wow yamaguchi really hates comedy even though truly he's doing it because he loves comedy so much that he can't stand these bad jokes so this is like this is the core of yamaguchi as a character it further develops where yamaguchi finds out that kamayama also writes in and is actually the like one postcard comedian who outdoes him on the radio show who like gets even more jokes in. Um, and there's this parallel that we get where Yamaguchi is Ajishio Taro, which uh, translates to like Ajishio means like salty basically. And then Taro is this common name that's like firstborn son or eldest son that would be for a boy. And then the, the, pen name that um kamiyama uses is hachimitsu boy which means honey boy and so that we get like this parallel of like salty and sweet that i think also kind of like matches personalities um also kept captured within it is like there's a certain amount of like traditional aspect to yamaguchi saying taro versus like boy like the, Ameri- the english kamiyama yeah using the english boy um Taro does not like mean itself boy, but has like a similar connotation. So there's definitely like that parallel happening there that also then fits into this whole dream that Yamaguchi has of like, I want to be a comedy duo because um, I'm totally 
drawing a blank right now on the name of the like traditional form of Japanese comedy, but where there's like it's kind of like a straight man funny man. Yeah, um, it's actually yeah, yeah. yeah, it's actually where Beat Takeshi or you know Takeshi Kitano, um, where he came up in, he was the, um, I believe he was the funny man and was like well known for basically completely talking over his partner. Um, like his duo partner um, and like being incredibly over the top and like violent in the ways that he portrayed things, which definitely ties into, I'm sure we'll get to some of his films at some point when we get like bored of constantly doing anime, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, like back when we want to, when we yeah. want to do sad things again. Um, so it makes sense that like, like even their names are already figuring into like they would make a good comedy duo and like what their names suggest where like it's so easy to see Yamaguchi as a straight man to Kamiyama's funny man right mm-hmm. um but then Yamaguchi finds out that Kamiyama loves this show Putan and Yamaguchi hates Putan and so then there's like all of episode 7 basically is Yamaguchi trying to understand why someone would like Putan and there's like this dual intent that seems to be happening of can I figure out how I can find this show funny as well as like can I reach a point where I can explain why I don't find this show funny in a way that doesn't just feel like me being like jealous of its success or something right (laughs) also that's not the entirety of episode 7 because the very end of episode 7 I mean it's kind of figuring into the quote-unquote plot of episode seven, but there's this like <laughs> this Garotan sequence, which I think Garotan, I could be mistaken, but having read the first 12 volumes of Cromartie High School, I don't remember Garotan showing up. So this is also another like I read the Garotan sequence showing up as being like, let us introduce some additional like level of like okay, there's the manga, but we're also doing these extra jokes that are like the weird absurdity going on in the background or these weird interstitials that happen in some of the episodes. Um, I think my favorite one is the one where it just like suddenly cuts to playing guitar in the woods and this person's playing a guitar in the woods and then they just shout, this is a non sequitur and throw it in the air. Um, And (laughs) and it's... I think they're like, wait, we're here to play baseball or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, and I think, like, Garotan is also, like, a more explicit nod to, like, we are also adding on something new here. And we are, like, pulling from some additional influences. Also, the anime has references to Digikara. Like, a few of the characters appear, and I think some of the voice actors actually show up to voice them. Um, So, like, episode two has, I believe, Kamiyama being like, what if I looked like this? And then it, like, changes to this Digikara character. Which I think is also a nod to, like, we're pulling from some other comedy anime, even as, in many ways, the heart of the show is, like, a very, very direct translation of the manga. We are pulling occasionally from extra material, and I think where that's informing the most is the weird, like, we're going to stretch the animation, like... It's someone talking, and so we're just going to stretch the image across the frame slowly to, like, introduce extra animation. Or we're going to just, like, have different backgrounds happen. (laughs) Or there's just going to be some, like, weird old man in the sun that's happening in the background while this is playing Yeah, who's, like, emblematic of, like, comedy or something. Yeah. Um, And so, like, like, a lot of this is... like, the concept of comedy. 
Yeah, and a lot of this is like if you read the manga, there's definitely times where Eiji Nonaka draws in like here's the background of the school or the train or you know that that Takanochi's on and getting sick or like Maeda's house or whatever. But there are many where there's like literally no background because most of it is just a face and a speech bubble because you know Hayashida is like talking about something at length. <laughs> right? Um yeah. and I think like the the there was a lot of discussion I have enough familiarity with Crow High to like I've looked into in Japan. There was a lot of discussion around how are they going to adapt this manga that's mostly talking heads to anime. And so I think there's a lot of like intentional meta jokes around. Yes, we are going to like introduce animation and it's just like this completely pointless animation. That's not a part of the actual like original source material. And that is like, weird background things happening that are disjointed from what's being discussed. And the other, I like minor spoilers. If you have read the manga and you haven't watched the anime and you're watching along with us, the intro has masked Takanochi hitting a pillow with a stick, which is a reference to an actual extended plot that happened in the manga. Um, (laughs) where Hayashida ends up going on this like fantasy quest basically. Um, and part of it involves Mas Takanochi learning how to soften pillows by hitting them with a stick and then using it to teach <laughs> Hayashida how to swing a sword and like doing the same technique that you use to soften pillows. My understanding is they intentionally put that in the opening because there was speculation of are they going to do this because it will be a, a clearer, like, plot. Easier to adapt. Yeah. And something that, like, would match more to anime. And so they intentionally put it into the opening to continue to have fans say they're going to get to it eventually. They must be, like, building to this and they're just setting some stuff up right now. When, in fact, they the anime itself leans very heavily into most of what is like absolutely plotless or is like far more just like here's random gags in the manga. And that that in and of itself is a joke that the anime is doing by never giving you the actual like continuous plot that existed in the manga for like a, a, a certain run of the, the chapters. So yeah, we've gotten completely off track from Yamaguchi, but I wanted to like bring that up because I think it's, it's an interesting like tidbit that like further elucidates some of what's happening in this anime and the way that it's approaching comedy. And what I am doing right now is a very Yamaguchi thing of trying to analyze why the show is funny. <laughs> well, honestly, I, it, it's a tangent, but I don't think, I don't think we're entirely off the track. And I, I think the reason I say that is because, you know, this is another instance of the scope of the show in terms of the the material uh, of its like satire or parody or whatever you want to call it just being so wide and so so all-encompassing that the very fact that it is an anime adapted from a manga is like becomes itself a joke and yeah. like <laughs> a, a thing to be parodied and is like directly addressed many many and mocked like many many times yeah. it's starting at the first episode 
Yeah, starting with the, like, if you want to know why Kamiyama's here, read the manga. The, like, second episode has, like, anytime uh, manga is adapted to the anime, people are going to complain. You know, anyone who complains about this anime should have to watch it 1,000 times. <laughs> but, like, maybe I'll do different voices, blah, blah, blah. And that's where, like, the DJ Carrot reference comes in. And then also, like, oh, that was exhausting. I'll just be who I am or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's easier this way. Yeah. Um, but I also think that this this relates directly to Yamaguchi, who, as an aside, I will say, is is probably my favorite character. Same. I love Yamaguchi so much. I, I find myself, like, I think of Yamaguchi often in, like, especially in some of the settings that, like, I find myself in, like, at work and stuff, where, like, maybe, you know, stories for another day. But, like, I think of Yamaguchi often. I mean, basically every time that I launch into some theory bullshit on this podcast, I'm like, I'm being such a Yamaguchi right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so on that point, like, Yamaguchi, I would say is, I think the best way I could put it is that Yamaguchi is, represents a kind of, like, formalist approach to comedy where he's very concerned with like the right and wrong way of doing comedy and very analytical. So he's the type of person that, you know, gets really into stand up and then is like, okay, I'm going to I'm studying like stand up and I'm studying how these comics like set up their jokes and like why this is funny and like, you know, X Y and Z and trying to approach comedy from this like extremely analytical perspective, which in one way makes him the character who's like most equipped to explain Kroai in a way like this is kind of what we're doing as well. And especially like later, I think we'll talk about some of the formal like elements of Kroai and we'll especially be on Maguchi's then. But again, like as is its nature, um, Krohai takes this character who is, you, you know, perhaps closer to, like, its own philosophy than, yeah, like, Yeah, in, in episode four, it's very obvious, like, it's very easy to be like, ah, Yamaguchi is, like, the representation of the person who likes Krohai, right? Yes, but, but then <laughs> the show, like, turns that and makes Yamaguchi, like, himself this object of humor in a way that is like i think yamaguchi is like is milked more than any other character in this show for like humor especially his like obsessive rumination it plays into like the one of the main strategies of crow high um which is this like uh this kind of conflict between like you know the assumptions of like like social assumptions versus a character's like interiority escalating into this like explosive outburst his like obsessive rumination and his like self-doubt play so perfectly into the comedy of the show um that he is just like a constant he's just constantly being milked for humor yeah and at, at the same time uh when he does tell jokes like they're they're bad like he's not even a a good comic yeah Um, like he he has 
What in episode four, he has the one good joke that good joke that he wants to tell. And then like Ishikawa ends up beating him to it. But even that joke is just like, well, it's like Cromarty, Cromarty. It seems like that's all, you know, or whatever, which is like not a good joke. And then he writes in a, a joke to the, like he steals a joke from Kamiyama and it turns out to not be a good joke. Um, <laughs> Although also some of the humor is like the theme for that night, which he expressed sends to try and get it in before Kamiyama is high school, like high school drama. And then it's this thing specifically about like your boss and dealing with your boss or whatever. Or no, it's about like, it's like money a Yakuza laundering. thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, which is like at the same time also joking about like, this is supposedly a show about teenagers, but is like also kind of about Yakuza. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it yeah, goes deep. Like, his jokes are not funny. No, but... they're not. And it seems like... I mean, I'll go I'll go step beyond that. Like, it, it is the case that Krohai is, like, satirizing this approach to comedy as well. And reserves, like, a, a particularly, like, central place for this satire, like, within within the series. Yeah, um, Yamaguchi feels the most like a satire of the people who like Krohai and then also the people who don't like Krohai. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. At the same time. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, Yamaguchi is like I can imagine that people who like work who like wrote or like worked on Krohai are like in a certain way Yamaguchi's in their approach to comedy, but like because of the nature of the show, like, again, it's all encompassing. So everything is it, just when you think you have like a firm footing or you've grasped, you've like gotten a hold on like, oh, this is like, this is, you know, what Krohai is trying to do. It's kind of like, no, that too is a joke. And uh, I think this is especially clear in episode seven where Putan is like brought in. Puton, like, just to add a little bit more, like, detail for people who might not be watching Krohai with us. Puton basically is, consists of two two men wearing, like, animal costumes in an attic. And it follows the, this, like, in this random attic. Uh, and it follows this continual formula of, like, the first person, Puton doing some mundane like household task i can't remember what the the first one is but the second one he's like grinding sesame or something yeah and then the other like the other person coming in like exasperated and being like oh puton like here's this like quotidian story from that just happened to me and then puton like analyzing it and like having just like arriving at this like anticlimactic like moment of like breakdown in the conversation and in in many ways like puton feels like crow high like crow high's imagining of itself yeah. like puton is to crow high as crow high is to other comedy and puton like it does a lot of the same things that crow high does just in a more extreme way in terms of like narrowing the field of elements 
and establishing a more like rigid formula and just like totally collapsing this narrative in a way that's like just co- completely like extreme in Putan. So yeah, Putan kind of occupies this place within Krohai as as almost like a, a mirror image of the show itself. And uh, in this way, it it kind of heightens the satire of Yamaguchi, who, again, like, obsessively ruminates over Putan, trying to, like, anatomize exactly why this show is funny, or, like, why do people like this? He frames it as, like, oh, this is for my own, like, edification, but it's also clearly a process that's, like, extremely frustrating, and uh, the climax of it all is, like, when he thinks he has determined what the, like, comedic element is, like, he's finally come to this eureka moment where he's like, oh, it's the costumes that everyone, like, this is what's funny. And then immediately the show is like, okay, now for everyone's favorite part, when we take <laughs> off the costumes and just sit here and talk about nothing. <laughs> yeah. Which, of course, like, captures the certain amount of, I think, part of the humor of Kurohai as well is this um, continuing to set expectations and then break them. And it, like, the way that it shows up in Putan is specifically showing you Yamaguchi feels like he has come to some understanding and then the show of Putan breaks that understanding, but... Crow High is also trying to do that same thing for you as the viewer, even if it's not quite as like literalized. So yeah, I, uh, I there is more to say uh, about all of that, but I think uh, this will probably come up again as we as we move forward. So we can talk about uh, episodes five and six. Yeah, I know. Like some of this, we'll we'll see how much we get into it, but. Um... So episode five is the actual introduction of Takanochi, who has shown up in previous episodes being like, when do I finally get to, to like show up? Which is also, I think also a reference to the manga where Takanochi's very quickly introduced, like that stuff happens earlier. So some of it is almost just like, wait, we're doing this out of order. Like, is it even episode three where that is the joke? Oh, I, I can't. I can't remember. I forget if it's three or four, where Takanochi. It's like about to introduce them, and they're like, "No, wait, we're actually going to do this other joke." Um, but yeah, it might be three because I think that's when it falls in the manga. But yeah, wh- one thing I find interesting here about episode five is that I think up until this point, like with Yamaguchi as well, we've been seeing one person's interiority and their struggle between like here's my personal inclination here's my like ninja and then here's the giri like the social obligation that i have and this we get the like dueling interiorities where takanochi and kamiyama are both like having their oh no what's going on blah 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 like how do i save face in this moment and those are like coming into conflict and this is one in particular where it's just like if they literally just said what was going on everything would be fine right like if Takanochi was just like hey I get like motion sick I'd be like oh you know I can like help you with that or uh, if if 
uh, Kamiyama was just like, oh, whoop, I accidentally sat on you, sorry, and just moved, like, it would solve problems, right? Um, yeah. And, like, I, I think, one, it's, like, further developing this because it's these two, like, we're getting two interiorities, but I think it's also further pushing, like, one, that's just a trope of, like, the misconceptions that two people have or, like, you know, the way that they're approaching things coming together where if they were just honest, it would, like, solve the problem is a thing that happens in, like, Yakuza and also Yankee and lots of other fiction. Um, and here it's just while you were talking about Putan and everything and like Kamiyama, I started laughing at one point cause I looked ahead in the notes and I just saw where you wrote, what the fuck is Kamiyama doing? <laughs> Sits on top <laughs> Nochi. <laughs> and, I, and I just started laughing cause it like, it's also just so absurd because it's like, wait, why the fuck did that even happen? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, but the show just like wants to introduce Kamiyama as like this constant like thorn in Takanoji's side that it's just like it goes like full <laughs> absurd with it um, but yeah i don't i don't know if you can even like if if you can explain like what kamiyama is doing when he's first introduced in episode five like if you can give a logical explanation for why that's happening like please write in yeah I, I just started laughing again because now I read the part where you said the final touch pudding um, <laughs> and both I love that moment and then also so Emily does not like Cromartie High School she does not find it funny but one show that we both find funny is My Boss My Hero which was this it's like a live action where a Yakuza boss goes back to high school because his father who's like actually in charge of the, the clan or like the Yakuza family is going to give it to his younger brother because his younger brother is way smarter and the like older brother is stupid and like doesn't understand the the business side or whatever. And so he goes back to high school to like basically get his GED. So that, that's the setup. But I think it's the very first episode where he really wants to get the special pudding that the cafeteria has. And so the entire thing and they're like, literally the furthest classroom from the cafeteria. And so then he has to learn about uh, parabolic arcs in order to like launch himself between buildings in order to get there first. And it's like making friends with someone. And there's multiple moments in the episode where they're just like, pudding, where they're just like <laughs> saying the Japanese word for pudding, which is pudding like over and over again. And so because of that, like, this specific style of pudding whenever it shows up in comedy like extra gets me for some reason so yeah complete aside but i final touch of pudding it gets me it slays me every time yeah even <laughs> and where the I fuck found... did it come from yeah yeah like this is such a the sequence with like takanuchi and kamiyama in episode five is one of those where i'm just like if I actually did a little one here. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go through all of it, but this is such a classic like crow high sequence that if I had to like, if someone was like, you have to show me one sequence that like explains how this show works, I would be like, okay, this is a pretty good one because this encompasses like a lot of the elements that that make crow high so great, ranging from like some of the the dynamics that we've talked about 
of like again like you know the contrast between like like someone's interiority and then social expectation here it's like it's doubled because of kind of as you were talking about earlier Kamiyama's and Takenuchi's we see it on both sides but then just like everything from that to like just the sheer absurd which kind of bookends it with like Kamiyama's like I don't even have a word the like little dance that he's doing at the start and then like at the end he just has like this perfectly plated like pudding that yeah. is such an insane like left turn and it's just like did he get this from his pocket but then it's like on a plate and it's like perfectly like this pudding has clearly not been in like a Tupperware container this is like like pudding that was like just plated at a restaurant <laughs> and uh, it's it's one of those where like you can't even discussing it is just pointless because like it's so perfect and of itself that you know it anyway but yeah if you're watching along with us like i i hope you enjoyed this sequence because it's one of my favorites yeah i think we can move on like so i don't have a ton to say about episode six this is the introduction of hokuto and hokuto's lackey they are trying to take over Kramardi High School and, like, continue to bumble through it. Hokuto discovers that this is not actually the school he meant to transfer to. It was supposed to be the school that, like, his dad is on the board for or whatever. Um, but this is a public school. Uh, he's wearing the wrong, like, school uniform. And yet still, through his bumbling lies, continues to, like, put himself into some Invest position himself. of control. Yeah. And, like, getting them more and more tied into what would be a more traditional, like, Yankee or Yakuza or even, like, beyond that, like, shonen anime plot of having to overthrow some, like, secret, you know, power that's ruling Japan and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and it... It's also great because I think if you're, like, first watching this show, you're like, oh, is this going to become what the show is? And it's like, nope, no. No. <laughs> That's what this episode is. Yeah. This is one of those episodes where, like, we talked earlier at, at some length about, like, you know, how does Kurohai really relate to this, like, Yakuza genre. Again, like, I think the... the ex- It's a very limited extent, like, that it... it is engaging with it directly and but there are like a few moments that emerge where it's just like oh yeah it's this is a moment where Kurohai is engaging directly with like this Yakuza stuff I think one of the earlier ones is the one where like when Mekazawa is introduced where they're like oh Mekazawa like we have this conflict with another high school and like blah 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 and he's like oh you know honor and this and that and I just need to like make a formal apology because that's the code or whatever and then here like we see again an instance where it's like oh this is clearly gesturing at like the yakuza thing where hokuto is like oh you know like he's framed as this traditional like ruthless power hungry character who who you would see like the type of character that you would see in like a, a yakuza film or whatever 
And at one point early on, it's like the episode itself is given like a subtitle. It's like a satirical subtitle, but it's superimposed on like the screen in this like battles without font. And it's like Empire of Ambition, which again is just like, yeah, that's like literally the kind of title that you would give like some dumb Yakuza film about like this guy who's like, oh, I'm going to take control of like the Yakuza. But then immediately, like all of this gets like reduced into like Hokuto's character, who is like becomes this like object of satire, where like even like he himself like begins to twist. He gets himself into this predicament where like, oh shit, I'm at the wrong school, and like instead of like being because of course he can't admit this. Then he has to, like, start lying about, like, the lies he's told already. And, like, the lies, in the course of doing this, he, like, twists his own narrative into, like, these other genres. Where it goes from being, like, yeah, like, Empire of Ambition, I'm taking over this school. To, like, oh, um, well, actually, like, it's a government conspiracy and they want me dead. And, like, I think the show is just, this is all just to say, like, if you're looking for an example of like how how is Crow High like directly satirizing this Yakuza stuff, this is one instance where it's like, yeah, we're literally like mocking this narrative by like twisting it into something else. Yeah, I think that was also a good moment. Like you briefly referenced to it, but there are other there. Like, throughout this, they continue to do some stylistic jokes. Like, there are certain moments where they bring back, here is a joke about the genre itself. One of them is just the, like, recurring moments where they will put, like, here's the name of the character underneath it. Where it's in that, like, font where it's, like, you know, here's uh, Yutaka Takanochi or whatever. And... Part of that is a joke about especially Yakuza cinema. So, like, if we get to Battles Without Honor or Humanity, a thing that they do a lot is characters will get introduced and they'll put the name of the character. Like, there'll be a freeze frame or something, and they'll have the name of the character appear underneath it. They do this in the Yakuza games as well, if anyone's played that. It's, like, directly coming from Battles Without. This was, like, one of the biggest ones to popularize this, I think. And part of why that happens is a lot of those films were produced very rapidly. And so there are actors in the five film series of Battles Without Honor and Humanity who play different characters because their character dies in like the first movie. And so then in the third movie, they come back and they're playing someone else. And so it's like almost this necessity to let you know this is who this character is because like just knowing the actor in and of itself is not enough and also the like the tree of different actors and how they relate get incredibly complex in some of the yakuza stuff and so there's like a certain joking reference to that here that i think is also happening with especially takanochi where it keeps showing up and takanochi keeps explaining like in a voiceover or like the narrator will voice over blah, blah, blah. Like, this is who Takanochi is. Um, here's how he relates to the plot. Here's, like, his one weakness. And it, like, continues to comment on the joke that they keep doing it. And some of that is, like, tying into genre, even at the same time that I think it's, like, 
doing something beyond it, especially in like some of the repetition and the way that it is further developing it. Um, yeah. yeah even I, at one point, Takanuchi is even like, this might be an episode 14. I can't remember, but there's, there's a point where he's like, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, but like, yeah, I'm Takanuchi. Or yeah, that might be like episode 11 with the plane hijacking. Yeah. I don't like, I might just quick go through some of the rest of the like plot and feel free to stop me if you have things to jump in. Episode eight starts with a like kind of repetition of a joke from episode one of, oh, these are like unusual people to be high schoolers. So in episode one, it comes across as like, oh, let's go see the badass in these different classes. Um, And it's like Freddie, Freddie Mercury. Um, uh, gorilla and Mekazawa, and now like a doctor has to confront Freddy, a gorilla, and Mekazawa. And I think it's like first Freddy, then Mekazawa, and then being like, I don't know what else I'm going to encounter. Will it be like a bear or something? If it was a gorilla, like maybe I could deal with that. And then it is the gorilla, and then he's just like, Oh, great. Oh, great. This is fine. <laughs> whatever and like goes to the roof and just like screams um, <laughs> um and then this goes into mekazawa going to his quote-unquote doctor's appointment which is at a like electronic shop um and i think what's interesting here for me is the way that kamiyama and hayashida who previously the joke was them being like just say it just say that he's a robot are now in episode eight and also episode nine, especially going into this, like, don't say it like someone's about to. And they're like, no, like don't, which one is like inverting the joke that you saw previously where they're keeping it going by now, changing it to them, like trying to preserve what's going on. And then I think also in some ways, like showing that progression of like, Kamiyama and Hayashida in this like a growing group in like a very shonen anime way of like oh they're friends now um, <laughs> but in this like very bizarre framing of Mekazawa being this robot <laughs> um, yeah yeah I think the... you can definitely you can read it that way although like I also I just keep going back to like it's Crow High you know yeah so it's just like it's Chinatown it's Crow High <laughs> <laughs> yeah forget it people it's crow high yeah. um that's humanity for you <laughs> <laughs> um the other big thing that's getting developed in eight and nine is the celebration of different birthdays at Maeda's house um and also just other events like different meetings and things and is like further developing Maeda as kind of the, the punching bag or the fall guy. Like Maeda is the one who always gets captured and needs to be rescued. In some ways, Maeda is the friend in the group that everyone makes fun of because that's the dynamic of the friend group. And like part of how that's represented here is just this, like everyone keeps using Maeda's house. We also get the intro of Maeda's mom, who is the, first woman to appear in the entire series so far shows up in episode eight. <laughs> um, so we might get into gender. I think we can talk about it more when we, when we do our next episode, but yeah, they're like, it's funny to me that you get to episode eight and the first female character who appears 
is Maeda's mom, who doesn't speak and only grunts and looks basically <laughs> identical to Maeda. <laughs> um, one thing here, I don't know, actually. Um, so I was like looking up if there was a voice actress in the U.S. and there wasn't one listed. I don't know if she's completely silent in the dub or if they just use the grunts from the English or from the Japanese recording. But the person who is doing the voice quote unquote of Maeda's mom, which again is like basically little grunt sounds is uh, Megumi Hayashibara, which I think is hilarious that like they got Megumi Hayashibara to do the grunting of Maeda's mom. <laughs> like, yeah, the, like let's get like the, a premiere voice, voice yeah, actress to do this. So, role. If you're not familiar with her, so Christina McKenzie in Mobile Suit Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket, uh, which is one that I don't know if we'll talk about at any point, but um, is a like beloved OVA for a lot of Gundam fans. Uh, does the girl Ranma voice in Ranma One Half, which we didn't include on our list of anime to cover, Connor, but I might actually include. There's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ranma One Half, but the mm-hmm. like whole premise is this martial artist guy who, whenever it's, I think it's cold water, makes him turn into a woman and then warm water and he turns back or something. I forget the exact like way that the water figures into it. Other than I just know like splashing with water is the big thing. It's been a while since I've watched it, but uh, there are a lot of trans people who have feelings about Rama one half. I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Um, also voices Lucy McMillan and Macross plus Macross never going to be actually localized in, in English because of the whole Robotech stuff. I think one of the biggest ones we know that we're doing Neon Genesis Evangelion and Megumi Hayashibara does Rei Ayanami, Yui Ikari, and Pen Pen in Ava. Uh, also does Lena Inverse in Slayer. So uh, Menchi, if you're listening to this, my friend, shout out to you, number one Slayers fan. Faye Valentine in Cowboy Bebop. And then also I put in here the Japanese dub of Ruby, uh, voices Raven Branwin. So if you're listening to this, remember we're an export audio podcast. Go listen to Newbie and WBY on export audio. It is my favorite podcast about a show that I'll ever watch. So shout out to you. That's why I included this here. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I I I find Maeda's mom as a character and like the fact that they have Megumi Hayashibara doing her voice is like a joke in and of itself to me. Definitely. Um, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think the other, at least so far, like the other mom character that enters in is um, Kamiyama's mom, because like, it's, this is like, you're just peeling, like peeling back the layers of Crow High. And it's just like, there are so many, there's this whole like epistolatory device in like the first several episodes i can't remember if it goes all the way like through to the end but where like the series is framed as like oh like in letters from like kamiyama to his mom which like then then itself becomes a joke as you learn more because it's like we learn that kamiyama like lives the closest to the school of anyone and like walks to school every day and it's like, why are you writing letters like 
This is like a device where, like from a series where it's like, oh, I'm at, away at boarding school and I'm writing letters to my to like my mom at home. But it's like you walk to school every day. You live like 10 minutes from the school. Like, what the fuck is this about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like to quick hit some. So episode 10 here uh, introduces. So there's been references to Maeda being captured by Bass High. But uh, here we actually see some of the, the main characters at Bass High, which is Satoshi and Takejo. Um, so Satoshi, like the whole thing with this being uh, Satoshi's nose hairs keep popping out of his nose. And like Takejo being like, I I want to say something about this, but should I, can I, blah, blah, blah. Um, which is kind of just like, I continue. Like it's further pushing the internal conflict to something even more con- like absurd which is just this nose hair thing and then it cuts to Kamiyama and Hayashida talking about how nothing interesting ever happens at Cromarty High School while Freddy is riding a horse to school and then the horse is like attacking Maeda <laughs> and it's just like all this bizarre stuff that would never happen at high school and like during it, Kamiyama is talking about how everyone just assumes that their life is exceptional, but actually most people have this completely mundane life. And yet, like, part of the joke is Kamiyama is doing the opposite. Like, the show is so bizarre and out there, and yet everyone's acting like this is normal. Which then gets commented on by Takejo, like, going there and witnessing the weirdness of Crow High. And, like, calling back to Satoshi and being like, um, you're not going to believe this, there are, like, hoof prints... It's like, it looks like horse prints, but it's the size of an elephant. And they're like, is it a horse or an elephant? And it's like, no, I'm telling you, it's like a horse the size of an elephant. Um, (laughs) And then like, oh, it looks like there's like a gorilla here. And they're like, oh, every school has some guys who look like gorillas. And then the guys who look like gorillas, they're like, I don't know. I've Uh, never seen someone who looks like a gorilla. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just, like, keeps building to the introduction of aliens, which becomes a major plot point in the live-action Cromartie High School movie. But, yeah, we get get aliens here as well as, like, a further adding on of something that hasn't even happened in the show yet. This is one where... So, again, I first watched this in undergrad, and uh, we would watch it periodically. And so... My junior and senior year, um, I lived in an apartment with Menchi, who I just called out earlier, and our, like, a friend of ours lived in the same building as us and would sometimes come and hang out, but he hated every single time that we would watch Cromartie High School because he was just like, nothing ever happens, and so when... There's one time where he was like hanging out and we had Crow High on. Like he came and like knocked and it was episode 10. And we were like, look, it's you. <laughs> like you're saying like nothing happens in this show. But look, like Maeda's head is being mitten by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it like this does feel like it's in some way ironically addressing like another critique that people could have of the show of being like, oh, it's like so boring. There's like no plot. It just it doesn't go anywhere. And then it's like. But all of this absurd, absurd stuff is happening. Like, <laughs> I don't, it's just like this further weird development of what's going on with the show. And that, like, that exchange always, um, like, I think of that every time I see this episode. So, um, I don't know if you have anything else here. I know you don't have notes. No, it was just, 
I, I, I feel the same way. Like, this is one that, even, like, by the standards of Crow High, this is an episode, like, that is kind of, like, I think 10 and 12 are, like, kind of perplexing. But, yeah, this one really comes off to me as, like, one that is, like, trying to engage with this, like, this critique of, like, oh, you know, nothing ever happens. And then maybe, like, there's some sort of, like, granule of, like, like life being quotidian and, like, the way that people see their own lives as, like, oh, my life is very quotidian, but, like, you know, in reality, like, every, everyone's life, like, even in the quotidian, there is, like, you know, all of, all of this, like, amazing stuff happening. Like, blah, blah, blah. You know, you could do that reading. But, yeah, I just, I feel like this is one that is, like, seeming to gesture at those kinds of things. But obviously in a very, like, within the trademark, like, absurd Cromartie way. Yeah. In terms of, like, 11 and 12, I don't have a ton of notes on either. Um, 11 has this continuation of Takanochi as a character. Um, they're going to go on a field trip to... I, I believe the field trip is originally planned to be America. I forget. But... I, I think it's, um, it's like, Kyushu. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's, like, Kyushu. And then they're hijacking it to go to the U.S. Um, so these plane hijackers wearing like wrestler masks and openly talking um, about like hijacking in the middle of the airport. <laughs> yeah. And talking out, she's like, Oh no, that'd be terrible. If like they end up hijacking the plane when I'm on it and I have to go all the way to America. Cause I'm going to get very motion sick on the plane, especially for that long of a, a trip. And then in trying to like prevent this or like, Oh, is there some way I can like, get us out of this ends up getting basically roped into it and then ends up in Nevada while one of the hijackers who's wearing a mask that says the first character of Takanochi's name Taka on it like is then posing as a as Takanochi in order to avoid arrest <laughs> um and like that yeah, one of it is just, like, this extension of some of the absurdity and some of the stuff that was going on with Mekazawa in terms of, like, people maintaining some sort of untruth and, like, seeming to be oblivious that this is not Takanochi when he's so clearly not Takanochi. And then I think is also, like, to the extent that the show engages with genre parody, is also further emphasizing a thing that happens a lot with especially Yankee stuff is, like, how old... Like, if you, like look at Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, you're like, these are not high schoolers. These are not. They aren't. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like clearly parodies of like Fist of the North Star, right? Or like drawn in that style. Um and this is like, oh, this is like literally some guy in his thirties who's talking about, you know, when he was in a prison in Mexico. Um <laughs> who's like the the old like senpai or whatever who's like putting wisdom out um and they're like wow it's so it's amazing how mature you are takanochi yeah um, <laughs> yeah and everyone just like thinks takanochi's so badass that they're like oh okay yeah like that checks out you were in mexican prison when you were like 13 okay yeah and then we also get the great scenes of takanochi in nevada which are are like also just fun weird 
like in a way non sequiturs while at the same time being a part of the plot. And one of my favorite just being the like, I wonder if, you know, the people at Crow High are looking up these same stars right now. And then it just cuts back to Hayashida being like, you know, there's a time difference between Japan and the US. And people are like, what the fuck are you talking <laughs> about, Hayashida? Like, why are you bringing this up? Yeah. Um, it's like we just moved through like three different frames of reference. Like, yeah. Like three different <laughs> fictional frames here. And then episode 12, uh, we get like this certain crisis with Mekazawa and we get like a scene that's somewhat parodying the, oh, there's like one in particular, the super matches that I, I think it might be in the Cutie Honey movie, which I don't know if we'll ever cover that as like a tokusatsu thing, but um, definitely has like, here's a dramatic song while someone walks around looking pensive or in like the streets of Tokyo. Um, but it's definitely a trope that gets parodied here. And then Mekazawa's was like, I'm going to ride a motorcycle to clear my head and gets into a crash and then is rebuilt along with the motorcycle into this like super bike that has missiles and everything. Um, and then we get Kamiyaman Rider, this like parody of Kamen Rider. They don't call it that, but that's, that's how I always the think of it in my head. Yeah. That's the implication is Kamiyaman Rider. And uh, we get our first spoken line, like actual words from a woman, in this show, which is a woman being robbed who calls out for help and also like talks to Kamiyama and thanks him afterwards. And we get like Kamiyama launching missiles at the robbers. And then this like extended music video. That's just like clearly a weird parody of the way that these like action sequences, music videos will happen in shows. Then culminates with the punchline of the cops ar- arrive and arrest Kamiyama and Mekazawa because of like, the is... road safety campaign. <laughs> yeah, uh, they were like speeding or something, and also launching missiles, which is probably against road safety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of this feels like it's continuing and like continuing to build and twist to jokes, but this is one that feels the most like out of left field where there's suddenly just like, let's do a weird common writer parody or something yeah. in like the middle of the show. Um, but I think it's also further, like again, the show and the manga as well is not as directly a like here. It is a singular parody of the genre. It is like, 
engaged in some sort of comedy that it occasionally uses genre parody as like in my reading as material for the actual jokes that it's doing, which is like a more direct playing with the form of comedy. Mm-hmm. And that involves playing with the form of genre parody. Yeah. And this, this one to me, like the whole music video thing is like that. That's the one, that's the part of this episode that I find especially like perplexing, but maybe I shouldn't because it's crew high. <laughs> But it really, like, it makes me think about how, like, I know sometimes people talk about, like, like Ava and in the context of, like, oh, well, you know, they ran out of money, so they did, like, this this or that. Like, what was, like, episode eight or whatever, like, the middle episode of Ava, where it's just, like, here's your here's this recap of everything. Well, whatever, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But, like, yeah, the music video, it's just, like, repeating this these same scenes like over and over again that have just like happened in the last like five minutes like as a complete non sequitur with music behind it It, and that's just what what like it makes me think of of like oh they ran out of money so like they just had to this was all the these were all the scenes they had so let's just like repeat them three times with the song underneath yeah there's also there's a weird thing that happens here too where the music video has some of the like so in general the show is not like quote unquote well animated which again is funny that it's like the immediate follow-up like clearly they poured their budget into ghost in the shell standalone complex (laughs) and not priority high school in terms of animating (laughs) right yeah um but there is still this like a lot of what ends up in the music video are some of the things that could be like slightly better animated or seem like more high production. And if you just watch the music video part on its own, like it might seem better animated than the show overall. And yet literally it's all just repeat scenes that happened earlier in the episode. (laughs) And so like, there's this like weird inversion that's happening as well. Yeah. It, it definitely feels like it is a, it's one of those things too, where I feel like they're playing with, here is like a joke about fillers as they exist in anime but then it is also at the same time because we are building up for the punchline of the arrest which (laughs) gets set up of like oh the police arrived late and then there's this entire music video and then we get the like resolution Um, yeah like too bad i cracked the case yeah (laughs) Um, yeah and so it's like also in this weird way like constructing a joke by using the filler as part of the joke also this reminds me in some ways of garth Marenghi's dark place which is just another great (laughs) um show that i think is in some ways being a genre parody and in some ways also just like dealing with the weird construction of jokes for its own sake we probably won't cover that show but if you like Crow High, you'll probably like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. I'll say that. <laughs> Just a, a recommendation here. We'll put that in the um, non-anime recommendation box. So we can maybe wrap up here with episode 13. Baseball. We can't escape it. You know, it, it came into our conversation briefly for Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. Here it is again. Production IG just must really love baseball. 
<laughs> I don't I don't know why. Yeah, and there there's I mean I'm not gonna like reiterate all of the jokes here. Freddy with the like Naruto fish cake on his cheek from the ramen shop always like just cracks me up. Also pointing towards when we talk next time some of the stuff around like the sushi shop i feel like it's kind of pointing to it with this like these ramen owners but uh the sushi episode is one of my absolute favorite episodes of Camarote high school so um we, we will get there yeah i don't know i you have more written out here for this episode but um, um I'll, I'll kick it over to you i will get up on the mounters pitch and i will throw the ball to you to knock it out of the park yeah that was like like 50 percent correct so that yeah <laughs> uh sports analogies um so uh yeah I, I just think this is a really good one to end with i mean it's a great episode but um also i mean in spite of the baseball it's a great episode and also just like so crow high in so many ways only crow high could start an episode in the mode of like aspirational sports movie like oh Hayashida like you want to play in the you know high school baseball championship like follow your dream you know let's put a team together blah 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 and then like within five minutes like it has pivoted to like survival drama um where they're like lost in the woods and like have no food or water and are like oh how are we gonna find food and uh yeah i think even again like in this narrative we see the show being kind of having this like meta comedy aspect where the characters are lost and trying to find the plot there's a couple moments where they're like stranded in the woods talking about something and then they're like oh that's right we came out here like to play baseball and then they like have like three seconds where they're playing baseball and like hit the ball like way too far i guess like a five hour walk away is what they is was what it is technically and then like the whole baseball thing is like completely dropped again so uh yeah the characters like in search of a plot that they feel to find but ultimately like returning to safety again through the help of the the wrong gorilla yeah i know we have some additional notes here i don't know how much we want to save for next time we can talk about some of this we can maybe touch on a few just me like looking through some of what you wrote i think honestly i think we can have that discussion next time if if that works yeah i i think you know we're not probably gonna have full like three hour episodes this time and that's fine not everything has to be ghost in the shell. So I have some bad news about the length of next episode. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we can wrap up here. We will we will see you all in two weeks with episodes 14 through 26 of Cromartie High School. Sakagake, Cromartie High School, which um, literally translates to, like, charge, like you would shout, like, on a battlefield or something. Sakagake, that's what that word is um i think adv for the manga translated it as like uh forge valiantly ahead or something um which is 
is like overly wordy, but also seems to kind of fit the humor of the show. So <laughs> any, any final thoughts? No, I think, uh, I think my brain has been um, sufficiently wiped clean, which is, which is how I judge any good discussion of Cromartie High. I forgot to put the other things that we need to mention at the end of the episode, but uh, we've mentioned before, if you want to write into the podcast, it's ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at ghostdiverspod, also on Instagram, although I do not post there nearly as often, especially if you want to like see me doing jokes about what we are watching and recording, even though it's not going to air for like, you know, the episodes aren't going to go out for like two months. Twitter is a good account to follow there. You can also follow me at FoxMomNia on Twitter. Where can people find you, Connor? At Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-S. And uh, how often have you used that so far? Um, not, not often. <laughs> Although I will reiterate, I think I said this uh, back at the very beginning, but, you know... If a certain number of people follow me and are like, hey, I, I hate your podcast, then I, I will honor that and I will I will post. Um, but for now, yeah. Um, yeah. So follow me. Follow me and, uh, you know, tell me how great the podcast is by all means. Yeah. Otherwise, you can go to export art dot io or patreon.com slash export audio to support the network and to check out other shows on the network so i'm going to do a quick shout out here as well to i mentioned earlier newbie which shows up in the main export audio feed but it is a great podcast if you want to listen to people talk about ruby as someone who has not watched ruby at all i do enjoy the podcast so there's that that's my endorsement um, i'm also gonna call out hot singles Especially because Cromartie High School, we didn't mention this, but it has a lot of uh, references to popular music, like Western popular music. There's some other ones, too, like there's a Blade Runner reference in one of the titles, uh, but most of them are references to classic rock albums and things like that. Hot Singles is a great podcast if you want to just listen to two non-binary people talk about music um, and like go into, into depth about various albums so uh highly recommend that as well that's my my little plug for for this one am i forgetting anything i don't think so nothing that i haven't already forgotten i am forgetting what was the name of that song i know we mentioned it when we talked about episode three like i said the name of the song and now i've forgotten it again and this is so embarrassing that's the one that goes right I think I think so. How wait, how how did it go again? Um <laughs> Yeah, that's that's the one. Okay. You you sure it's not the one that goes I love you baby? <laughs>
I think that's like later on in the song. That's like that's the, that's the bridge. That's not the chorus. Yeah. Um. All right. I guess I guess we're done. Are you still recording? I'm I'm still recording. I never do, I never we'll, stop recording. Yeah. Let's do one more clap. I just want to get like a clap in here. Just to. Oh. Whoops. Well. <laughs> time that is. Time that is, Connor. Okay. All right. Hold on. Okay. Um, eighteen. Whoa, no, no. It did a weird skip. Um, let's do. Whoa, what is going on? Let's do twenty-seven. Okay. Sorry, that was too early. All right. Oh, let's. Okay, I'll give you a little bit more time this time. Let's um, do the time warp again. Um. Let's do. Let's see. We'll do fifty-one. Okay, that's that's good. Okay. Also, I think Emily's going to bed, and now the cats are pawing at the door. Uh oh. So. Barbarians at the gate. Hey, Lem. Hey, Ollie. I just let them in. Well, um, yeah. Uh, so. I think. What are you guys doing? <laughs> Maybe I should let you go to to tend to the to tend to the cats. No, it's fine. They were just like going into a weird part of the closet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, cats love closets. When uh, when um, before like my. I guess was, I guess she was my mom's cat, but like she was like my childhood cat. Um, before she died, like a few couple years ago, my mom was like building a new house, moved into the, this like new house, and there was like a closet that had um, I don't even know what you call this in like architecture, but there's just like a big hole in the wall that like led into like the inner like framework of the house, and of course like my cat like found it like we brought her when there when the house was like somewhat unfinished and tried to make it like cat proof but she found this this hole and like we were just walking around and like we just started hearing meowing and we're like what where the fuck is that coming from that's like from the inside of the wall and then we were like frantically searching how did scooby get inside this like this wall um, and then, yeah, eventually, like, we got her out, and then we put a wooden board over it. So, yeah. literally, while you were telling that story, I opened up Twitter, because I'm going to go make the Garfield Read Aloud account, and saw that Lauren had retweeted an account called Place Where Cat Shouldn't Be. <laughs> And it's just a video of a cat, like, <laughs> squeezing behind books on a bookshelf. Like, the very, like, the tiny amount of books at top. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. The little, like, gap at the very top. The books are very close to, like, the top of the bookshelf. Like, the, the shelf above it. And the cat, <laughs> the cat just disappears into it. So, um, that, yeah. it felt weirdly fitting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's quite a coincidence there synchronicity funny cat stories yeah when i'm pulling it up just 
We're going to see this. <laughs> My phone is like... I just turned, I turned airplane mode off because I always like... I have to disable every single device in my in my house when we do podcasting. <laughs> I just saw you that <laughs> the the Putan gif that you posted. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay, let's see. Place for a cat. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, that's impressive. All right, the yeah. Twitter account is at Garf Red Aloud. Garf Red Aloud. Yeah. Okay. I should have get today's Garfield, but it was already taken. But Garf Red Aloud. I tried to do Garfield Red Aloud, but it was too, too long. long. So. Garf Red Aloud. I I I do love that. So I'll start posting on that tomorrow. That sounds like a like when you put it all together, it looks like like some Welsh ass name, like <laughs> Oh, I Aloud. Okay. Oh. All right, I'm following you. Okay, <laughs> first follower. I'm not announcing this account until this episode goes up. Yeah, just like, you know. I'm, gonna, I'm that. going to start posting on it and just see if people find it. <laughs> That'll be an interesting experiment. Um, All right, well. Oh, man. The, the hardest part is my friend Alex, who we might have on the podcast at some point, who's been waiting for me to do this. Um, just, like, keeping it secret from him. But I know it's going to be so great when he listens to this podcast and finds out that I've been doing this for like months and then just goes and finds a bunch of videos of it. Um, yeah. Cause then I'll have plenty of content to go through. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want there to just be like one video when he, you know, when he first starts watching, you got to get him hooked. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I was, I mean, I guess the, well, the proof is in the, the perfectly plated pudding, but, uh, I felt like I felt like that was a pretty good episode. Yeah. This was definitely way more freeform than um than our Ghost in the Shell discussion, but I like the open endedness. It felt more relaxed in a good way. Yeah. I'm currently watching today's number is from David Lynch. Today's number is three. But well, tomorrow's number three. I don't know if you knew this, but David Lynch has... I th- I think there are a couple days where he missed it. But has basically every day been posting a video where he opens a jar that has balls in it that have numbers on them. And pulls one out and reads the number. Um, they talked about this at length in an episode of Swim Fans, which I forget what episode it was. But um, yeah, today's number is three. I haven't watched it yet today. That's that's fantastic. I I know that like 
as we speak, there's like four or five acclaimed like film study scholars who are like writing an article about this. Yeah. Like preparing it for publication in a prestigious journal. Um all right. Let me What do you think what do you think the ghost divers number of the day is today? What's the range? Um it is a single digit. Six. Today's number is seven. Oh no. So close. Damn it. Okay. Well, I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. I'm probably going to do the same. Bye. Um. I'm going to leave all of that in. I think (laughs) it's good. Yes. Uh, I'm going to take a quick body break. Okay. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take one as well, even though I'm not sure I need one, but might as well. Yeah. All right, sounds good. I'll be right back. All right, I am back. Ah, for once, I'm back before Connor. The podcast is mine, and all mine. See, previously I never heard any of these, like, clangs and bangs that are happening in the background. I just got back. I didn't hear the first part of that. Yeah, it's... uh, So... Oh, I was talking to the listener. Welcome back, Connor. So, normally, when I go to the bathroom, it takes me longer. Because I'm a lady? I don't know. Um, (laughs) And... So I just come back and put them on, and I'm like, I'm back, and there's Connor. And then when I started editing them, I hear all the weird clangs and bangs that are happening on Connor's end. Um, and those all get cut out. But I was explaining to the listener, here, I get to hear it live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're like, setting the stage for my clangs and bangs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. There wasn't a, that um... many when you came back this time, though. Often there's, like, a bunch of, like, steps. There's, like a door slamming or something there's like it sounds like you're like coming downstairs that you're like in a completely different part of a building yeah i have to go through the clean room before i can come back into my office what's what's a clean room it's a a specialized sealed room you know you (laughs) enter it and you close the door behind you and then they yeah uh disinfect you and then you uh open the door on the other side and then you go into your office Huh. I thought that was pretty normal. Yeah. That I don't have an office. I record in a closet, so Oh look at that's right. Mr. Moneybags over here with an office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's technically it it was my, really it's my game room, you know. My my den. Um, oh yeah. But it just it functions. Your, your man it. cave. Yeah, it is. It's it's my man cave. Un- unabashedly uh i have i have my prince posters up in here and uh you know a random like wall hanging thing that i got somewhere i can't remember it's probably hideous but 
I'm so used to it that I just like accept that it occupies space in my wall. The decor is pretty much impeccable. Just an update. So normally I'm drinking while we record. It helps me loosen up. During Ghost in the Shell, I was drinking like I would like have a cocktail and then like a nice beer or like a hard cider or something. I'm drinking two cans of Kiran Ichiban, which oh, is yeah. uh, premium 100% malt beer from Japan. Oh, I know. Um, it it feels very like I am a middle manager salaried position. Um, I'm drinking Kiran Ichiban and chain smoking in a theater with a bunch of other like middle-class middle-aged Japanese people. And we are literally watching all five movies of battles without honor and humanity. (laughs) Um, Like if I did still smoke, I would just be chain smoking right now. I want to bring that energy to Cromartie high school. So Kiran Ichiban. This cross between like, like middle-aged Japanese business business person and like high school delinquent. Yeah. Well, Definitely. so when I took a class on Yakuza cinema, the professor specifically talked about the one time that he went and saw all five of the Battles Without Honor and Humanity movies in a theater. And I guess it is pretty common that they will just marathon all five there. And it is just like a bunch of like middle-class middle-aged business people, especially businessmen who will go to this theater, just be drinking beer and chain smoking the theater and just like watching all of it. And it's just like, so we, we read this essay that um, I'm trying to see if I can dig it up again. But it's especially about, like, how Yakuza cinema has this, like, veneer of revolution or, like, standing against your superiors and against, like, you know, the, like, status quo. And yet functions as a release valve for those tensions. And so that is why it's like incredibly popular with these people who are in like a middle management position who like probably just feel terrible at their job and wish that they could like tell their boss off or whatever. And, but then they just watch this and it like gives them some little release and then they never actually do anything. And so like, in that way it actually becomes incredibly conservative. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to see if I can dig it up and see if I'm remembering it correctly and if I have anything interesting to say with it. Um, just throw it in the work cited. Yeah. I I feel like it would definitely come up if we do a series. We've talked about doing all five Battles Without Honor and Humanity as like a, a run of episodes. I would for sure do it for that because I think it's a really insightful essay. But um, yeah, I guess let's get into it. Let's do it. All right.